This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper says he's been keeping a list at his bedside of what a Donald Trump administration could mean for Colorado. He revealed that to us before the election. That list, of course, takes on new meaning now. I spoke with the governor at the state capitol Monday, our first interview since Trump became president-elect. And I asked him if he landed on Trump's calendar, what would he say to him? Well, I think that uh, my message is being delivered by all kinds of people right now, and that is, you know, let's go slowly and carefully as we look at making these significant changes to our nation's policies. Uh, and yet, didn't he win in many ways on not going it slowly, but making dramatic changes that spoke to voters? I think it's fair to argue that many of those people that voted for him weren't really voting for him. They were voting against Hillary Clinton for whatever reason, rightly or wrongly. The number, I think he got 47% of the vote, and legitimately the number, the percentage of people that really strongly believe in going fast would probably be closer to 35%. So is that, is that a mandate? I don't think so. What policy area would most concern you going fast? <laughs> there are so many to choose from. Obviously, healthcare, I think just immediately, uh, I mean, legally, they can't throw out all the Affordable Care Act on a whim. But, you know, they've, they've said they're going to take it, basically dismantle it immediately. There are hundreds of thousands, millions of people that have pre-existing conditions that now have uh, insurance that otherwise wouldn't. Each state, or not each state, but every state has had, to a varying degree, challenges and benefits of, of implementing, you know, expanding health care coverage. Now, we've seen across the nation, during the campaign, no one would really, uh, the media wouldn't pick this up. But if you go in the last five years, an average, you know, what the increase every year as a percentage has been of, of insurance costs for those people getting insurance through their businesses, you know, in other words, health care connected to their workplace. That is not Obamacare. That is not Obamacare. Yeah. Exactly. Totally independent. Uh-huh. And yet the rate of increase there for the last five years has been the lowest it's been in recorded history, right, in the last 50 years. So what happened was a lot of the uncompensated care in hospitals, Obamacare, uh, helped expand that. They digitized everyone so they could begin keeping medical records on databases and ru- instead of on paper. Uh, that has allowed significant savings in many arenas. Now, there has been more up and down of the specifics, like the exchanges, but that's a relatively teeny number of people. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is the whole system is affected by the decisions. So the rate of, of people's insurance that they get at work could easily be going up uh, more rapidly if, if Obamacare has changed in ways that aren't thoughtful. I'll say that the Republicans are interested in keeping the pre-existing conditions portion of the Affordable Care Act, it would seem. Yeah, I, th- well, I, th- I expect that there'll be other uh, places that they're going to try and keep parts of it as well. So are there conversations going on in the administration uh, about the future of Colorado's insurance marketplace? What, what is the future of the exchange? Well, that we don't know yet. Again, that's a classic case is, are they going to get rid of all the local exchanges after we put so much work into getting them going? Uh, they're going to keep the, the national exchange if they get rid of the local ones. And these are, I have no answer because I have no data and I don't think anyone knows. I want to say it's open enrollment on the exchange and uh, the state's exchange says demand is high. Plans bought now will be honored through 2017, according to the Washington Post. Another part of Obamacare was not just getting private insurance for more people, more Coloradans, uh, but also expanding Medicaid. And many Republicans in Congress, including the Speaker of the House, want to change Medicaid, which is the health care program for the poor, by block granting it. 
Basically, the feds give money to the states to run the program more or less as they see fit, and states need to come up with extra cash if the federal money doesn't cover the cost. People on Medicaid now could decide to buy what Republicans say will be cheaper plans under this new regime. But Colorado has had a pretty generous Medicaid expansion. One in about five Coloradans is on Medicaid. Would the state try to keep all those people on Medicaid if the Republican Congress wanted to roll back how much the federal government spends on it? Well, you know, I come from the school that that healthcare should be a right, not just a privilege, and that we can argue about the level of healthcare. And, and you know, my feeling is that people should have a basic level. Not everyone should get a new hip if their hips sore immediately. There should be, you know, an evaluation process that if people are having private health care insurance, they're obviously going to get more. They're probably going to get shorter wait times, all kinds of benefits. That being said, if there's a block grant, is it uh-huh. going to be a flat grant that stays with no inflation, even as health care costs continue to rise? What about the cyclicity? So if you go into a recession, sometimes you're going to see the number of people that are, have their own health care is going to go down dramatically and the need for Medicaid would go up. That being said, we will try to keep as many people insured as possible. I think it's very hard to go... To Not pe- necessarily on Medicaid, you were saying. On anything. Uh-huh. On the private exchanges, on me- but on Medicaid, on, on everything. But philosophically, would you try to maintain the Medicaid rules to the best of your ability as governor? Or does it matter less to you that it's Medicaid if there's an alternative private plan for the indigent. Right. It it matters less. I'm happy to have an alternative plan. And I think that just because people are from lower income family doesn't mean they shouldn't have choices if we can, if it's possible to provide them choices. On immigration, you reassured a crowd in Alamosa last week that if the federal government tried to quote, round up immigrants in the country illegally, you wouldn't let that happen in Colorado. Why did you feel the need to talk about that then and there? Well, we've heard and continue to hear one story after another about how nervous people are. I mean, and not just people that are here without papers, but all kinds of people feel threatened by a lot of what they heard in in the Trump campaign. And I just, you know, Trump during the campaign had said he, if he got elected, he would put together a, a deportation team and they would remove the 11 million people that are estimated to be here illegally in rapid order. Now, I don't think he's obviously backing away from that, I think. And I don't, I can't believe they really meant that that's what he was going to do. You know, the ends to him justify the, the means. So it doesn't matter whether he, he really intends to do something. If it was useful in the campaign, he was willing to say it. I hope that's the case because, I mean, the estimates are up as high as $300 billion to do that. And the disruption to our economy and to our communities would be staggering. I mean, the tearing families apart. So there was so much fear about this. I thought then, and I think now, it's important to say, hey, this isn't going to happen. And, you know, it's not a question of being sanctuary cities. I mean... Well, it is, because Denver and Aurora might face some penalties if they hold on to that distinction. Well, the the Supreme Court's been pretty clear about the federal government is, it's very difficult for them to withhold transportation money or education money because you don't conform to a, a policy. U.S. versus Prince was the case in terms of the federal government cannot commandeer uh, state resources to carry out federal policy. The person who wrote that opinion was Justice Scalia. And this is a, a clear state's rights issue that the federal government can't come in and say, you local police have to do this because we're telling you to, because it's the law. You have to enforce this federal law. It's the federal government's job to, to enforce that law. Well, and let me, on that point, why wade into 
what is potentially dangerous territory. I mean, do you think as a matter of course that governors should outwardly contradict the federal government on an issue that's really under federal purview? I mean, enforcing the country's immigration laws. No, that's what I said. I'm happy. Look at what the federal government's been doing, right? Uh, President Obama deported 2.5 million undocumented uh, immigrants, right? People that didn't have the right papers. They were here illegally. And they were, for the vast majority, a serious threat to our communities. If the, if the federal government's going to continue what Barack Obama was already doing, which is removing violent criminals from our communities who do not have the legal right to be in this country, we're supporting them 100%. That's what we've been doing. What I was responding to and was the fear in our community, there are a million, a million other priorities we have in this country that we should, I think, be more uh, rightly focused on. And I think that, you know, long term, the people that have been here for years have been paying taxes, obeying the law. We need to find some way. They've got families here. They own real estate here. Many of them, you know, are, are intimate parts of the community. We should try and find some way that they can legally stay, at least get some sort of a, of a green card or a, a temporary legal right so that they're here legally. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are back at the state capitol for our regular conversation with Democratic Governor of Colorado, John Hickenlooper. President-elect Trump spoke highly of legacy energy sources, including coal, during the campaign, and spoke poorly of renewable sources like solar and wind. One of the first things he wants to do is reverse President Obama's executive orders, including one on energy. If the clean power plant goes away, do you proclaim, as clearly as you did there on immigration, no, Colorado is a renewable energy state? Well, if you'll remember, Ryan... When we discussed the clean power plan before, I said that that our efforts around energy in Colorado are not a result of that plan, right? We are at a mile high. We have thinner air. Pollution of our air is much more harmful to us at this altitude than anywhere else. So if there are ways that we can reduce pollution, ozone, particulates, uh, everything, uh, and yet still protect our consumers, both businesses and residents, I think we should do it. I think it's independent of the federal government, which may, may not be backing it under a Trump administration. Right, but we, we didn't need them to back it before, right? If we can do it for the same cost, don't we owe it to our citizens to give them the cleanest air to breathe that we possibly can? So what about that draft executive order you floated last summer, which calls for a 35% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030? Would you keep pursuing that, knowing that Colorado probably won't get any more mandates like that from the federal government? Well, I think we should certainly continue to pursue that 35% number if we can do it and not affect people's electrical bills. So that's still on the table, absolutely, even under a Trump administration? Even under a Trump administration, I think we want to have the... And to be honest, I, thought, I think if, if Donald Trump was sitting here beside me, he'd, he'd agree with this. If for the same cost we can deliver cleaner air... Why wouldn't we do it? It's a simple business proposition. Any sense of a timeline for pursuing that executive order? Well, I'm not sure whether, whether we're going to do an executive order or lay it out in, a, in an op-ed. You know, we're trying to figure out what the right format is. Might it be legislation in the coming session? Well, certainly to get to that level, we would need uh, legislation okay. in one place or another. And I think Republicans and Democrats, pretty much all the Republicans I've talked to, agree that we want to have clean air. True, but do not necessarily agree about this 35% reduction executive order. Well, but, but that's because we haven't had a chance to sit down and look at how would we get there and how can we do it in a way that doesn't cost us more money. 
Along those lines, some in coal-rich parts of Colorado want to know if you'd go along with President-elect Trump if he tries to reinvigorate that industry. State Senator Jerry Sonnenberg, who's part of the state Senate leadership, was quoted in the Colorado Independent as asking you, if this country wants to continue utilizing coal, if it's cost-effective, will we be allowed to? Of course. I think that, you know, that's what we've said from the beginning. And, you know, Senator Sonnenberg... Who, who I think is one of the most elegant at, at representing rural issues. Right now, what's really been the, the biggest challenge for coal is the fact that natural gas in an open market knocks them out of the water and is much – it's half the pollution. Well, I think that's why certainly environmentalists hearing you say, of course, would respond, how the heck is he going to support coal? If he just talked to me about clean energy. <laughs> and of course, I imagine that those in coal communities will be celebrating that answer. Yeah, but it's not going to happen, right? Now, what you asked me was, can they do it on an equal footing, right? And right now, you can't have as clean an atmosphere burning coal. We don't have the scrubbers yet. And certainly, there's, I think, uh, a President Trump is going to invest more money in trying to make coal cleaner. But right now, it is so dirty, and it's more expensive, right? If you're putting a new plant together to burn coal and a new plant to burn natural gas, the natural gas plant's going to have cheaper electricity. The real reason coal has gone downhill so dramatically is uh, how rapidly the price has gone down of natural gas and how rapidly the price has gone down of wind. Those two things have put coal at a tremendous disadvantage. Do I essentially hear you saying to coal country in Colorado, getting coal jobs back is just not realistic? That, well, that was a false promise from this candidate. I think that it's, it's a steep hill to get coal jobs back. I, I do think uh, that we are all committed to trying to figure out how do we get more broadband into coal country and how do we make sure that we provide incentives for small businesses or entrepreneurs to locate their businesses there to, to replace that industry that right now is at a, such a competitive disadvantage. But just right now, given the conditions we see, it's hard to see how coal is going to get a lot more jobs back to it. Uh, it's just, again, it takes a lot of labor to get the coal out and the natural gas comes out so inexpensively and is so much cleaner. Then there's oil and gas drilling. This is a top economic advisor to President-elect Trump on NPR last week. We think we can raise uh, significant amounts of revenues for the federal government by opening up uh, more of our federal lands for leases for oil and gas development and coal development. And the energy companies will actually pay the federal government to be allowed to drill and mine on some of these lands. And we're not talking about environmentally sensitive lands, but uh, lands that just have been taken off the grid. Is there land in Colorado that fits that bill? Well, what's environmentally sensitive and what's not is a sticky wicket and hard to define. We don't have lands that are presently, uh, we don't have many lands that are presently excluded uh, that could be opened up. Uh, so you're saying you don't think there's a lot to tap there? Yeah, we're in not going to have a, see a lot of change in Colorado. There are perhaps other parts of the American West where more land that has higher potential will be opened up. But you know, the bottom line is... Do you think is, that should happen? Well, the bottom line is I don't think there's very much of it. And I don't think it's going to have a significant... I mean, work out the models and look at the revenue. Uh, George W. Bush thought he was going to see huge windfalls from these kinds of lease revenues. And it really never materialized. My guest is Democratic Governor of Colorado, John Hickenlooper. We speak regularly at the state capitol. Coming up, what does he think is the promise of a Trump administration? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Now the second part of my interview with Governor John Hickenlooper. We spoke Monday at the state capitol, our first conversation since the election. 
What do you think is the greatest opportunity for Colorado under a Trump presidency? Well, I think that I am always concerned about uh, the economy and business. And certainly President Trump, President-elect Trump, has made a commitment to make that a priority and to do everything he can. I obviously, like many people, worry about getting rid of all our trade agreements or, you know... Or renegotiating them. Well, but some of them he said he would, you know, get rid of immediately on day one. In each of these cases, often I think there is some benefit that can be gotten from renegotiating uh, agreements of all kinds of sorts. But, I mean, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I think that's the thing that most people worry about is, are they going to go so fast? Are there, is there really going to be a surgeon's approach to making sure we're getting benefit and not doing harm. Trump also wants to approve a giant infrastructure package. The details of that are sketchy. It could be a trillion dollars. It could be $550 billion. Uh, In any case, I'd like to know, what would be on your wish list? I mean, you talk to me about transportation funding based on the need all the time. Well, obviously, a, a large infrastructure program would be warmly received by almost every state. The devil's in the details. So he's talking about some tax credits, which generally suggests that the federal participation in, in this kind of infrastructure would be quite small. So he's not saying the federal government's going to spend $550 billion or a trillion dollars. He's saying that that's how much infrastructure will be addressed. So he's talking about more tollways, I mean, most likely more tollways, more public-private partnerships, which I'm open to. We need so much more infrastructure in this country that I'm not turning my back on any suggestion. Uh, Is it important that some of that be spent on transit to you? Yeah, absolutely. I think long-term transit is the ultimate uh, solution to being able to have a continued economic growth without strangling. And I think part of the reason Colorado's done so well and Metro Denver has done so well, when Metro Denver put in fast tracks, it meant we had a decided advantage in attracting talented young millennials that Nashville and Austin just don't have. So you'd want to see money spent there for sure. It'd have to be. I want to talk about the state's efforts to ease tensions between oil and gas producers and the communities where they drill. Those efforts are being tested right now in northern Colorado. On Friday, a neighborhood group announced it's suing the state. It alleges the state isn't following its own rules to look at alternatives before drilling close to homes and businesses. Have you followed the situation in Triple Creek And are you concerned about the way the state is dealing with situations like this now after your oil and gas task force tried to make these negotiations more inclusive? I mean, here we have a lawsuit. I have followed this one Mm -hmm. uh, quite closely. Actually, uh, at an event about three or four weeks ago, one of the local folks gave me an envelope with a uh, description of what their complaints were and what they thought should be done. They're, They're really concerned about a lot of truck traffic. Truck traffic, they want to see why there's not a pipeline there. They want to make sure how come the uh, tanks aren't buried. All that went through the process, and I think we're we're obviously going to go back and review it, and a court will decide. Our understanding is that the process was followed carefully and and got uh, a certain level of results, but not enough results to satisfy the the local community members. The lawsuit estimates the trucks will make more than 100,000 trips on this road over a 27-and-a-half-year period. So what you're saying is, is you'll see them in court, I guess, on this one. Yeah. <laughs> no, not that, not that I'll we'll see them in court. That, that, that puts a tone on it that I would never ever use. I mean, 
you know, I was in private business for 20 years, and I was never in court. I never sued anyone, never was sued. And we try to do everything we can to avoid litigation in, in these kinds of things. On Triple Creek, you're confident the state has followed its own rules. But given a lawsuit's been filed, how do you feel about the new rules? Are they working? Well, one lawsuit doesn't mean the thing's a failure. So, Well, it's early. <laughs> it is early. Uh, I think we want to sit down and, and look at it, walk through it, and see if there's not some way. Oftentimes when you get into court, uh, there's an opportunity to sit down and try to continue to resolve what your disagreement is and your issues are. Could that have an effect on the rules then? Well, you'd have to go and change the rules, and, mm-hmm. and any time you change rules, is a long process. So I don't think would, you'd have a direct effect. But if there's a better way of doing things that is able to create a, uh, an easier path to compromise, we're all for it. Thanks for being with us. Always a pleasure. Democrat John Hickenlooper is governor of Colorado. We speak regularly at the Capitol. After a break, a snow forecaster with a cult following. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Skiers and snowboarders are rejoicing that snow is finally falling in Colorado's mountains. And you'd be hard-pressed to find a skier happier than Joel Gratz. He's a meteorologist in Boulder who seeks out the best snow and shares what he finds with more than a million of his closest friends through the website he co-founded, Open Snow. And Joel, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. We'll get to the forecast in a moment, but I want to hear the story of how you got into snow forecasting. I understand that it had to do with Steamboat Springs. Is that right? Yeah, this is a scratch-your-own-itch type of business. I grew up loving snow. Snow. I grew up loving weather, went to school for meteorology and when I, at Penn State, and when I moved to Colorado, there was a problem because I was missing big powder days, and one of those was up at Steamboat Springs. In November of uh, 2005, they had 48 inches in 48 hours, and I was not there, and that made me very mad. And (laughs) I resolved that day to put my degree uh, to work and uh, in pursuit of my passion, which is to forecast and chase and ski big powder days. And my, has this effort grown? (laughs) <laughs> I, I I was just thinking before we came on the air that six years ago when I left my job, my full-time job, and uh, started uh, what would become Open Snow, it was called Colorado Powder Forecast back then, I had no clear path to revenue. I had some ideas, but no clear path. And I would have uh, laughed if somebody had told me that six years later it would be sustainable, profitable, growing business, and uh, I would be living my dream. So I'm I'm. Very thankful. It has been a very dry fall. Did that end with the snow last week and what Colorado's getting? Yeah, this is these storms are chipping away at the dryness. So one, one or two storms usually will not erase the snowfall or precipitation deficit um, that we will have. But uh, I am hopeful that looking at the long-range outlook through the mid part of December, uh, there are more days with storms and cold air than not. So I think by the time we get to mid-December and especially get toward the holiday week of December when most of the resorts are really hoping to have a lot of terrain open, um, I think we will 
have a lot of terrain open and will have largely, maybe not completely, but largely erased that uh, that deficit from a dry uh, and warm fall. That must make you happy. <laughs> there, I I try to. Uh, keep my emotions in check, both positive and negative emotions. I've learned over the last six years that uh, I, I can't let them swing too much because it will come out in the writing and, and people will notice. And even now, I don't keep them in check perfectly. People will notice when they read the Colorado Daily Snow every morning that some mornings I'm very excited and giddy. Some mornings I'm a little um, a little concerned. Um, but I, I feel just like I did when I was six years old and there was snow in the forecast and I could not go to sleep because I was waiting for that first snowflake. Uh, snow continues to get me that excited. So let's talk about what this means for maybe some specific ski areas. Um, my colleagues looked at opening dates for ski areas going back to 2010 and resorts close to the front range, say Breckenridge, Winter Park, are opening later while places in the central mountains, like Aspen, are more or less on track. What would you say is worth skiing right now? Well, there is not a lot of terrain yet. Many of the mountains that have just opened, um, Breckenridge, Keystone, um, Copper, and I know Vale and uh, and Steamboat are opening this week. Eldora just opened this week. Um, many, It's great that they're open. Many of those mountains only will have a few runs on machine-made snow. Yeah. Uh, but worth skiing is in the eye of the skier. So if you're, if you're jonesing for, for making some turns and, and getting up on the hill, um, then anything open is worth skiing. If you're looking for a lot of terrain, and that's what's really gonna gonna motivate you. Then being patient for another week or two um, until a couple more storms uh, fill things in will probably be uh, the right call. But uh, hey, uh, having a couple turns and then a beer at the bar afterwards is is never a bad thing. You note that Wolf Creek will open Thursday of this week, and Wolf Creek is traditionally thought of as the the place in Colorado, the ski area that gets the most snow. I think. Yeah, so they just got a storm uh, with uh, 12 to 18 inches of, of thicker kind of base building snow. So that's phenomenal. But, you know, this early season, it's it's tough. If you get a couple storms, everybody's open early and they're thrilled. And if it's a little drier like this year, then uh, everybody's pushing back opening dates. So really the push to, to open earlier is exciting uh, for a lot of skiers and it's exciting for resorts from a marketing perspective. Um, but from a weather perspective, you know, I've looked at data going back 10 to 15, even 30 years, and there are other seasons that have started quite dry, huh. um, like this one. So uh, it's while it's unusual, uh, it's not unheard of. I loved an article that you posted about purgatory. That's near Durango. Last mm-hmm. weekend, they had skiing and mountain biking <laughs> happening at the same time. It's, you know, they, they crystallized what a lot of people think of. In Colorado, which is we have different climates and can oftentimes mountain bike and ski or golf and mountain bike and ski uh, all in the same day. So I I was thrilled uh, to see them formalize that uh, in terms of, hey, come out to mountain bike on Saturday morning and then we'll open up a run uh, on Saturday afternoon. Kind of in the, you know, the local uh, the local take is that's what a lot of people kind of do anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's great to see them put a, a formal spin on it. So we've heard a lot about La Nina expected this year. Briefly, what is that and how do you expect it to relate to snow? 
Sure. So La Nina and El Nino are terms that are thrown around by uh, most people when talking about longer range forecasts. La Nina means that the central part of the Pacific Ocean is cooler than normal and El Nino is the opposite, warmer than normal water temperatures. And you might think, well, why do water temperatures thousands of miles away matter? And that's because they change uh, the patterns of thunderstorms that form over the equator and that in turn changes the storm track over North America. And it changes rather reliably, but not perfectly. So what I mean by that is when we see an El Ni- a La Nina year, we know how some of the storm tracks will change over uh, over North America, but we don't know uh, perfectly. There's no perfect correlation. And so what that would probably mean, all things being equal, is that northern areas of the U.S., Canada, and the northern part of Colorado would see more snow than the southern part. But mm. I am going to be the first one to tell you that all things are not equal and that there is not a perfect correlation with El Nino or La Nina and the weather in in Colorado. And so I am loath this year to give a seasonal forecast uh, for two reasons. One, because we only have a weak La Nina, which means its influence on the weather is not as strong. And there are other things that will influence the weather, other things that we're not sure of, uh, even in this day and age. And two, even with a seasonal forecast, even if I could give you 100% certainty that a certain area of Colorado would be above or below average snowfall for this year, it would not allow you as a skier to time your trips uh, to chase powder because we can't get that specific it's down that to the precise. Yeah. Right. Down to, even, you know, a six month forecast won't give you the week that it's best. For people who haven't heard of Open Snow, your website, um, it has daily ski forecasts. It has webcams at many of the ski areas. In 2013, Outside Magazine called you Snowstradamus. <laughs> do, do you have access to something that the National Weather Service does not? Uh, in short, no. Um, our our differentiator is focus, and it's focus on skiers and providing weather that skiers want to hear. So uh, the folks at the National Weather Service, at weather at the Weather Channel, Weather Underground, I know a lot of them. They're phenomenal. We all use the same data for the most part. Um, but what we want to do is celebrate snow and direct people to powder. So when there's a winter storm, the National Weather Service and others will talk about its threat to safety and property as they should. But we talk about how excited we are about skiing and where people should go out and ski. So it's simply a focus on actionable information that people can use to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to take off Thursday and I'm going to go ski some powder. Snow is not just fun. It's how a lot of Colorado's water is stored. Uh, It's a huge reservoir in many ways. Uh, Given the forecast you've talked about, how does snowpack look and, and potentially the you know drought yeah i i am colorado is an arid state outside of the highest peaks we do not get a lot of precipitation any precipitation that we get is gold snow or rain and snow like you said really matters for the uh, for the spring snowmelt for this year i i honestly i don't know although with a la nina that can tend to give some parts of the state more snow and less in the eastern and, and southern mountains. Right. So I am hopeful that this will even out and that will be okay this year. Uh, but every year, I'm a little bit nervous for the snowpack and, and for our water supply just because we can be an arid state. Joel, thanks for being with us. You bet. Thanks for having me. Joel Gratz is co-founder of Open Snow, a ski forecasting website. There's a link at cprnews.org.
Thanksgiving is Thursday, and maybe you're still thinking about how to prepare your turkey. It's something Denver chef and James Beard award winner Jennifer Jasinski has thought a lot about. We spoke to her in 2006 about the time she prepared a boneless bird. Last year, I deboned the whole turkey, but kind of left all the 100% of the skin intact around it. And then I stuffed it with stuffing and retied it up again. So it looked like a turkey, but it didn't have the bones inside of it. And then, yeah, I know, you have that face. Yeah, I know, it sounds like, crazy. Where do the bones come out? You have to make certain incisions and then kind of scrape them and pull them out. And then when you put the stuffing back in it, though, then it all bakes at the same rate. Because why the legs take longer to cook is because they have all the bones through them. And the breast, that's why the breast gets dry. Will you try that again? I mean, yeah, that... definitely. Definitely. And I kind of truss it and stitch it up again. Uh, my aunt calls it the turkey autopsy. She thinks I, <laughs> she thinks I'm doing like a turkey autopsy. How did people react when they ate a boneless turkey? Oh, it's great, you know. And they also like can get a slice of it with the stuffing in it, not just oh, pull the stuffing out because you're not you cutting the st- through the bone. Yeah, that's a Thanksgiving turkey idea from Chef Jennifer Chizinski, who owns several downtown Denver restaurants, including Rioja and Bistro Vendome. Here's another turkey concept. It has roots in India and comes from a U.S. senator, Colorado's Michael Bennett, who was actually born in India and lived there till he was one. Senator Bennett got the recipe from a cookbook called Madhur Jafri's Indian Cooking. It's actually a recipe for chicken called Whole Chicken Baked in Aluminum Foil, or Merg Masalam. And Senator Bennett used to make the chicken for New Year's Eve. And a bunch of my friends that uh, enjoyed that meal insisted that we move it into Thanksgiving. So it became whole turkey baked in aluminum foil. First, you got to make a marinade and let it sit in the marinade. Then you make a paste out of a bunch of spices and onions and things like that that you have to fry up and then ultimately put on the bird and then wrap the aluminum foil around the turkey. It takes a lot more aluminum foil to wrap up a turkey than it does a chicken. Bennett says it's complicated, but all you really have to be able to do is read and follow the recipe. And he says, at least according to his friends, it's always a big hit. We've linked to the recipe at cprnews.org. Again, all you have to do is substitute turkey for chicken. And we'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In Nepal, elephants can be a big problem for farmers. They get into rice paddies and destroy crops. Villagers often shoot them. Conservationist Dave Johnson of the Denver Zoo has a plan to save the elephants and protect the crops using beehives. He joins my colleague Andrea Dukakis. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrea. Good to be here. You first saw beehives being used in elephant conservation in Tanzania. How does it work? Well, when we were there, I was uh, climbing Kilimanjaro and doing some conservation work. And uh, they use beehives about every 30 meters as a fence to ward off elephants that are trying to get in to eat all their vegetables and their rice and their corn. And it really is just a, a, an aggressive way to keep elephants out by scaring them away with the sound of bees. So they're scared of the bees. They are. They don't like the sound of the hive. They are scared. They don't want to be stung in their eyes or their ears. And it really wards them off. It's been working great in Kenya. Now it's moved to Tanzania. And we're hoping to have that technology available in Nepal. So have you been traveling to Nepal to set this up? 
Yes, I've been. I just got back a few days ago. I'm still on Nepal time. Um, it was my eighth visit, and I take a lot of our community over to kind of entrench them in the conservation work, which is a lot of fun. So, but the the beehive work has just come about because last year, part of the fencing that we had established was destroyed by elephants. And one of the, the villagers that we worked with was killed by elephants. So we wanted to uh, get some new technology in there. So we're going to try to have the bees be a sustainable way to add to the fence and then provide honey uh, for the families to sell at the market. So it's a, actually a win-win. Yeah, a way to save the crops, uh, a way to save fo- people, um, and also save the elephants at the same time. This work in Nepal is just one part of your efforts to save elephants and rhinos around the world. You also take groups to Nepal and Africa to do conservation work. And I should say this is separate from your zoo job. Um, it's through the Denver-based Katie Adamson Conservation Fund. Why do you do this work? Well, I got involved with uh, with animals at a young age. I was really just fascinated by them and, and driven to work with them in some capacity. And I got a degree in wildlife biology and came to the zoo almost 20 years ago here in Denver. And I just want to... Uh, keep growing my my efforts to help the planet and the animals I take care of. And the best way to do that was to get our community involved in the wild. And so not just taking care of elephants and rhinos here in Denver, but also going abroad and taking our community over there to reach out. By helping the animals and the people of Nepal and Tanzania, you're actually establishing a firm grip on conservation. And you create all these wonderful people. We've taken 96 people over now, and they all come back ambassadors for pachyderms. Why this devotion to elephants and rhinos specifically? Well, I started working down in South Carolina with uh, elephants and rhinos after college. And uh, it really is kind of like my career has been kind of love the one you're with, so to speak. I was a bear biologist in Alaska, loved bears, loved wolves, went on to work with elephants and rhinos in South Carolina and just really got committed to them. Denver had an opening. I came here 19 years ago, and we have a wonderful animal community, and they're so endangered. They need our help. The ivory and rhino horn trafficking has just been increasing, and it's getting scary that in our generation, in our lifetime, these animals could be extinct. What's going on with the population of rhinos in Nepal? Uh, Happily, the population of rhinos in Nepal is increasing. We had a low number of greater one-horned rhinos of about 200, and they are now at around 3,400. They're only found in India and Nepal, so really only have two countries to establish some conservation partnerships in. And Nepal's population has gone from 478 to 645 in the last four years. So uh, helping helping to let the people understand that there are crazy people from America that come over to see their rhinos and elephants is awesome because live animals are much better than what they can get off of a one-term purchase from ivory or from rhino horn. And you take these groups to Nepal and Africa. What specifically do you do with them there? 
we go over and it's kind of ecotourism. We raft and canoe and hike and get out in the wilderness. We run from elephants and run from rhinos and dodge cobras. And uh, we have meetings with World Wildlife Fund Nepal. And our biggest partner is the NTNC, which is the National Trust for Nature Conservation. And they're doing all these things. We're partnering with them. We're building a wildlife vet hospital. We're helping orphaned rhinos. Uh, we're, we're building fencing and helping with motorbikes for anti-poaching units. There's so many things we can establish in Nepal. And going annually just helps reinforcing that. And in terms of the ties, say, between Coloradans and folks there, why is that so important to you in terms of uh, for conservation? Well, the ties for me are we, we have Asian elephants and greater one-horn rhinos and black rhinos at our zoo. Um, Colorado people are outdoorsy mountain people just like they are in Nepal. And there are people that are really green. They want to see the protection and they want to see these animals thrive. And the people... Uh, much like our, our Colorado community, are very excited about the future. Nepal now has almost 26% of their land protected. So they're doing way better job than even the U.S. in protecting their natural resources. They are really um, the the top country, if you look at it, for, for protecting wildlife, rhinos, elephants, and the people around them. They have communities around the national parks called buffer zones, mm-hmm. and these communities actually help protect their animals. They do anti poaching runs, and they provide more land for the animals to live in. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any changes over the years because of your conservation and because you've been bringing groups over there? You know, the the best um, the best way to look at it, when I first started going in 2010, they were suffering from about 10 to 12 rhino being poached annually in Chitwan National Park. And they have had um, only one poached rhino in the last four years. And now the communities fight over their rhinos. They don't even want rhinos moved from Chitwan to Bardia and translocated because that is what's bringing people like our community over to see them. So it's really interesting in just seven, eight years how much has changed and the rhinos are being protected much better now. This is CPR's Colorado Matters. We're speaking with zookeeper Dave Johnson about his conservation work protecting rhinos and elephants in Asia and Africa. Uh, You work with rhinos and elephants all the time, but the people you take with you on these trips aren't experts, and these animals can be really dangerous. Have you had any scary moments on these trips? Well, we've had several scary moments, and you can't be out in the wilds of Nepal and not encounter some some hair-raising instances. And uh, we have run from elephants uh, three times, mm-hmm. and our guides carry little bamboo sticks with them, and that's supposed to help with tiger, cobra, and rhino. And uh, this past year, um, just, just two weeks ago, we had a lady break her ankle running to see a tiger in Bardia National Park. It's the most severe incident that we've had, and she had to fly back home early for surgery. So uh, we have had some instances, and uh, we have run zigzags, and we've thrown our backpacks down, And uh, but it's all part of our efforts in getting our people out there. Some of them are not zoo-based. Um, some are parks and wildlife people. Some are just regular people that have come to some of my book signings and want to help. And the technique for getting away is running in zigzags? 
Yeah, elephants and rhinos can outrun you in a straight line. So you're supposed to zigzag and throw your backpack down, which unfortunately means we're training elephants to chase tourists in Nepal. And I've brought that up because the elephants then get your oranges, your apples, your sandwich, your water. And so now they've got elephants that see tourists and actually run towards them. So we actually maybe need to do some better training. (laughs) We've posted photos of tourists and locals riding elephants in Nepal. I've heard some elephant advocates don't like that. They don't think it's right to have animals carting around humans. What do you think? Well, I tell our people every year that you have to suspend some of your Western feelings about elephants. They are an animal over there that is like our horse here in Colorado. You ride them um, around. They use them for anti-poaching runs. They use them for tourism. They do so much with them. They have a big saddle that will fit maybe four tourists on their back. And it's so important to their economy. And just like dog owners and horse owners here in the States, you have some good ones and you have some bad ones. Mm. And I want people to realize that elephants are part of their economy. Elephants are part of their family. And it's a huge part of uh, the culture in Nepal. And I think I am privileged to get to ride on an elephant back and be able to help these animals thrive in the wild and support their economy. You've donated thousands of dollars to build a veterinary clinic Um, in Nepal. And um, then the earthquake hit. Um, When will it be up and running? Well, we just got some good news on this trip. Uh, January construction is supposed to start. The vet hospital is for all wildlife in Nepal. It's going to be a $300,000 project now. And uh, we have given almost about $35,000 to help it along the way. And uh, they say it's going to take a year and a half to build. So as we go back in the next couple of years, we'll get to see it coming up out of the ground and uh, establish some some more partnerships. They're going to be doing tests uh, on on the cattle and dogs in the area to keep um, diseases from affecting the wildlife. And we want to be part of this of this big mission. Rhinos and elephants are often poached for their horns and tusks. Have there been any new developments in the trade of horns and ivory? Well, we just had a big CITES convention um, down in South Africa, and, and they have not legalized. A lot of the countries want to legalize ivory. Um, they have a lot of ivory stockpiled. But luckily, um, clearer thinking prevailed, and uh, we are trying to help people understand that rhino horn is just made out of keratin. It's like your fingernails or your hair. It does not help you medicinally. It will not cure your cancer, sadly. Because a lot of folks do use that medicinally and feel they that do. it helps. They do. They do. We had a Vietnamese cabinet member years ago that said rhino horn cured his cancer. And it's created this uh, this this trend for everybody to try to use it. And it's, it's actually um, now worth more than its weight in gold. It is a huge substance that people are, are using the black market. And now in some of the East Asian countries, it's a, it's a status symbol. And you want to give rhino horn to your friends and have it after a night out of drinking. And they actually use it as a cure for hangovers. Mm-hmm. So it is just a panacea of cures that it really doesn't do anything for anybody. Dave, thanks so much for being with us. You're very welcome. Denver conservationist Dave Johnson talking about his efforts to protect elephants, rhinos, and other endangered species. He spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. We've posted photos at CPRnews.org. 
On Monday, we spoke with the founder of StoryCorps for advice on talking with loved ones about the election civilly over Thanksgiving. You can find his tips at CPRnews.org. And a reminder that we'd like you to tell us how it went, what you learned. Call the number I'm about to give you and leave us a voicemail after the holiday. It's 720-358-4029. Again, 720-358-4029. If you miss that, it's at our website. You might go a step further and record a conversation with a loved one. Use your smartphone and email the file, news at cpr.org. We may use your experiences on the air as we continue to report on how Americans find common ground after the election. That's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warren. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and on Facebook, CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us.